Welcome to this week's Two Men in the Middle. This is where two men in the middle of the country get together and talk about politics, current events, and other fun stuff. I'm Craig Huey. I'm Brandon Kennig. Brandon, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been on mic. Um, you went to Vegas as part of your um, vaccine trial. Yes, Viva Las Vegas. Hmm. So our uh, group of us vaccine participants, we've been in this closed Facebook group where we've communicated for the past 20 or so months and just shared experiences, anxieties, what we were going through as, you know, phase one and phase two guinea pigs in these trials. And then one of the group founders had the idea of like, we should all do an in-person meetup when things get better. And so it was, uh, it's been scheduled now for the greater part of a year. I made more of a kind of a last minute decision to go. Um, and just like, Oh, I'll go. I made, you know, be nice to meet some of these people. Um, might be cool. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that's what I did last weekend, and there were about 40 of us who participated in the trial. That this was in up Vegas, right? In Vegas, uh, and so it was very informal. I mean, it was a number of organized lunches and dinners. We did do a flash mob dance routine in front of the Park MGM. Um, we had a closing dinner with a cake that actually had a syringe on it, uh, <laughs> and um, they gave out awards and different things, but... Um, it was a good group of people. They've already scheduled another one for April in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and the interesting thing was it's a cross section of people. I mean, the age range is everything from 24 to um, 66, 67. Yeah. And uh, all kinds of people from all over the country, um, California, Chicago, Texas, Florida. And it's just great hearing what motivated some of these other people to get involved, what their experience has been yeah. thus far, you know, the headwinds they run into um, at home trying to convince friends and family to get vaccinated and to discount the conspiracies that are out there. Um, but, yeah, really smart, great group of people and several of them who I'm now friends with on Facebook. And, yeah. You, you made a great point that because you participated in this trial – You've had as much vaccine put into your body as anybody maybe in the world has. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely rake up there. I'd, I'd how, how many shots did you get as part of the trial? So as part of the trial, I got two shots and a booster. Okay. Um, and then because my trial was with one of the smaller manufacturers that was still in phase two, they're in phase three now, um, they didn't weren't able to keep up with uh, Moderna and Pfizer. I decided to get what was commercially available, which at the time was Moderna and Pfizer. So I got Moderna. So let me understand. So you got three shots of potential vaccine from a manufacturer that has not yet passed the threshold from the FDA to be approved. Right. Now, I will say they're in phase three, and phase three is almost done, and it's very rare to come out of phase three and not sure. be approved. That's the final step. So they will, for all intents and purposes, be approved. The problem they're going to run into is because they're so late with the U.S. market, it's going to be difficult for them to capture much of this market. So they are going to focus likely on third world countries and then the military because they do have a agreement with the military. But, but knowing that and knowing that I wanted to travel when the pandemic started to abate, yeah. um, I'm like, well, I need to get what's out there because so I can get the vaccine card because I don't think having a form letter from the trial is going to suffice <laughs> to get on a plane and think, go to countries. Yeah. So then I got two shots of Moderna and then I recently got the booster shot for Moderna. So I've had six shots. So you've had six Six total vaccination shots. Yeah. Three of them from something that has not yet been approved by the FDA. Correct. And then the three Maduras. Right. And 
the group of people that you were with in Vegas, that they all probably had similar similar um, um, history, I'm guessing, around the vaccine. Yeah. Okay. So somewhat similar. And by the way, I did have my physical checkup a couple of weeks ago, and like all my vitals, lab work, everything's like perfect, sterling. So I, I'm good shape, no issues. Nothing. So with the people in this group, nobody mag- magnetized. No. Nobody gone insane. Not nope. No white. Nobody's died. No since black the trucks group following you guys around as you're all chipped now and the government's track. No, no, no physical signs of being tracked by the government. No, no real physical side effects. I'm assuming either, other than hey, I, I had flu-like symptoms when I got this right. or that or something. Yeah, like that. no side effects. Um, you know, unfortunately, nothing positive either, like X-ray vision or <laughs> telekinetic abilities. But... Nobody's a Marvel superhero coming <laughs> right. out of that group. Now that's what I was hoping would happen. I'm like, hey. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that group got together, and you, you said that that. When Dura paid for a few things too, and, and it kind of acknowledged that group and that you guys actually did when when the call went out, it was these people that answered that said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll take a jab." Yes, well, actually, so Pfizer was the one that acknowledged us, paid for a few things, um, and it is wanting to stay involved, especially as we organize the next uh, group outing. Uh, so yeah, so I, I, it, it's great from that standpoint. Um, they've been following us, and I think. Moderna and Pfizer see us obviously as ambassadors because we were the early adopters. Obviously we put ourselves out there and if anybody has authority to speak on the effects, it's people like us that have been, um, you know, have had the vaccines from the very beginning. And if anybody would be suffering adverse effects, we would by now. I didn't know that you were, that your trial was not Moderna and Pfizer. And I'm assuming you didn't get to pick. Um, mine is with a company called Inovia. Well, the interesting thing was at the time, um, the Center for Pharmaceutical Research in Kansas City, which does a lot of trials, they did give me a choice very early on Inovio versus Moderna, but it was so early. I had no concept as to which would come yeah. out like the quick winner. Uh, I chose Inovio because it was going to start sooner, and I was just anxious to get started before I changed my mind on yeah. it. <laughs> so I chose Inovio, and you know it, it didn't work out that way. Although Inovio is close to gaining approval, um, but but that's the thing to remember too. And I think despite you know the United States market has enough vaccines from the two leading ones, but it's good that we have all these other even smaller vaccine makers out there because you know, we're still behind in the rest of the world. I mean, there's still countries that are at a less than 10% vaccination rate. And there's going to be a lot of vaccine makers and supply capabilities needed, especially to get the third world vaccinated. And Madura, switching over to the the economics of of the vaccine a little bit. But Madura, if I understand correctly, they're not a company the size of Pfizer. They're a much smaller uh, player. Moderna is a smaller biotech firm out of San Diego. Uh, They haven't been around as long so they are a smaller player they were um infused with a lot of uh direct um federal funding yeah as well as uh funding for from the gates foundation to be able to you know be up to par with pfizer because that was the difference and i think pfizer did it really i don't think except any federal funding. they did because they, they didn't, didn't need, need to they didn't yes need i mean they're you know yeah. well, and i think i heard madura i think they made 11 billion in profit last year which again, I don't, yeah. I don't know what their normal profit is, but it was presented in the story I was listening to that that was a, a major increase over what they uh, what they had done prior to the pandemic. Do you think those companies, Madura, Pfizer, J and J, do you think they should be able to give up the patent to that? And generics should start being made of the of the vaccines so we can get to what you said, vaccinating more of the world. Do, do you think they should have to give up that patent and allow 
small companies in other parts of the world to start producing generic vaccines. I do, but where I struggle is knowing like the timing for when they should, because I, I do feel like there is that you know duration that as the early um, innovators, they should have a certain length of time to where they get to capitalize on yeah. what they created and benefit financially from it. But I don't think it should be extended out like in an inordinate amount of time. Like there should be a cap to it. Um, and I think probably, and maybe within some time next year that that's, it gets revisited and we look and like, okay, you've had, you know, almost yeah. two years now, that's plenty, uh, to I, benefit. I could see the logic of, Hey, Moderna and J and J, because you took the, the operation warp speed money, you give your patent up in two years, right? Pfizer, since you didn't, you get a longer run. That yeah. that would at least seem to make sense. And, and I, I think that's a, and I think that's a smart way of doing it and evaluating based on, you know, who took funding and who didn't. And, you know, because I, frankly, for, you know, uh, J&J and Moderna, you know, they they did take federal funding and there should be some strings attached with that, right? I, I, mean, I think so. Yeah. It, it, because mean, it wasn't just the companies investing themselves. It was all of us as taxpayers. Yeah. And you could make a business argument. We, we gave you this money. We eliminated risk for you. There, right. Therefore, we're entitled to X. And I think people could, could agree with that. You know, we talked about before we turn on the mics, we're just going to take some small topics and bounce around here today. So I will quickly say um, one of the topics, uh, just ending the note on um, COVID in, in Vegas, uh, was the Omicron variant. Yeah. And again, despite, and, and I, I tried to, what bothers me is there seems to be extreme on both sides. There's yeah. the extreme like doom and gloom. This is awful. But really, if you cut through all that based on like what we're actually collecting so far in the data and science, Omicron does not appear to be as severe as Delta as these other strains. No deaths, no hospitalizations. No. And granted, you know, South Africa, while yes, they have a younger population, they all also have a more immune uh, comp- compromised population yeah. because they have more HIV infected individuals, and which puts them at greater risk. I so heard- the fact that you don't have as many deaths and that the symptoms tend to be less severe mm-hmm. and, and less noticeable, that's really positive. And that's what we would expect with variants over time, right? That the virus replicates and evolves, but it evolves to a point where, um, you know, it doesn't want to kill off its host. It just wants to survive, which means it becomes less deadly. There's also some research out there that um, uh, insinuates that Possibly, um, Omicron is a cross between um, an earlier variant, uh, along with the common cold virus, which would also account for less severity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to remember most COVID viruses, the common cold itself is a COVID virus. Yeah. And the belief is that several hundred years ago, when it first emerged, it was a much more severe virus itself. It actually caused death, and it caused fever and 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 much more severe outcomes. But over time, it evolved and reduced in severity to the point to where it we now know it is the common cold, and it's not something we think a lot about. So the idea and the hope is that COVID will proceed along the same trajectory. To me, Omicron should be the transition from pandemic to endemic. Agreed. This should be the yeah. one where we say, listen, we're, we're not, we're not going to get rid of this because that's just how viruses go. This now is, is like the flu and how it's seasonal approach to it. And you should take the approach like it is 
uh, a version now of the flu. Still, if you're over 70, if you have these pre-existing conditions, all of that Much still cautious, applies. Yeah. But how we think of this in terms of death and hospitalization should be completely different. Oh, definitely. Because again, this is less severe, but also we have better and newer drugs now to yeah. treat people that are infected, that are that have to be hospitalized, how, which how, reduce... How long is it going to take to make that turn? Because I That's think you would question. agree I, with that. We are, we're a little bit... We're a little bit maybe too heightened since with COVID right yes. now. It, I mean, the news stories are It's time to hyper, start bringing it back. We do. The news stories have been hypersensitive yes. about Omicron before we even knew, like, how severe it was. Like, oh, my gosh, like, this could be worse. Like, yeah. And we know now it's not. It's not. And we don't see the contextualizing of that as we should. And almost we're still treating it as like we treated Delta, even though it's not Delta. And so, again, I don't know when that's going to happen, but we need to have that moment happen. Um, and you know, the science is there to show us that, Hey, this is great. Yes. There's a new variant, but it's less severe. Um, in many cases, most people are asymptomatic. It's nowhere near what we saw last year with Delta, um, and the earlier variants. Like this is something to actually be like happy about, um, and realize that COVID is not going away. It's going to be endemic in the population. It will continue to evolve, but likely be less and less severe over time. And like you said, we treated like the, the flu. We understand that there's going to be likely a seasonality to yeah. it. We take precautions. We get our shots, um, you know, and that's it. And we proceed with life as we normally would. And shouldn't Biden, I mean, the Biden administration should be the, the institution that starts leading that conversation. Oh, they have to. It needs to be from the top. COVID is way different now than it was a year ago. Yeah. And we were trying to get to a point where we could eradicate this virus. That would have been the most ideal outcome, but because of the nature of viruses and how vaccinations uh, in this country and around the world work, we may not be able to do that. Now it comes to managing it. And you should think of it like like you manage the season flu. There's a little more risks involved, but here's here's how you do that. And here's the resources we're providing you to make that happen. It just seems like we're we're at this point where nobody on the, the dim side, let's say, if we want to you know, cut an even political slice to how to look at this, nobody on my team, I don't think, is ready to give up Pull back that wants that, to do that, that yeah. panic message. Yet. Right, we still default to oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Instead of saying, hey guys, this comes down to managing it like you would the flu risk for you and your family on on a yearly basis. And I have seen no indication that Biden is ready to kind of tip the spear in a different direction and try to lead that conversation differently than what he's been doing. No, I haven't seen that either. And I think that there's on the left there's this fear that if you pull back a little bit. It somehow gives carte blanche to the naysayers to just yeah. completely, you know, ignore, you know, the pandemic and COVID entirely. But the fact of the matter is that those naysayers who have not taken it seriously this whole time, they're not going to take it seriously no matter what. Like, I mean, the point is that you need to speak to the, your larger, broader audience of people that have been following the protocols, but also realize that this is changing. There's been a number of publications. The Atlantic had a great piece on this about how we need to move into this new phase yeah. of living with the virus. And yeah, I would hope that states and then some of those countries, particularly in Europe, that reacted by going to total shutdowns would reevaluate and say, hey, we have you know about four or five weeks of data now on Omicron. It's not 
severe like we thought yeah. it was, we can start lifting, you know, these measures uh, because that, that can't just be our default approach with no end in sight. We have to get to a point. We have vaccines. We have successful um, treatments and drugs for those that uh, are uh, post, um, uh, you know, that are contagious and, and have already contracted COVID. So we have the toolkit we need to manage it, which we had none of that early yeah. on the pandemic. And that was why we had shutdowns and we had all these measures in place because there was no um, remediation. There was nothing uh, that we could do to um, impact our um, experience with yeah. it. And we do have that now. And I understand from the Biden administration or just from a public health perspective, we're going to ride the vaccination track as long as we can. Yeah. That the only viable way to get out of this pandemic is everybody getting the shot, knowing that that's not going to happen. But at some point that becomes less effective. And now it comes down to here is how you manage this. Here is how you manage COVID from a, from an endemic mm-hmm. perspective. Here's what you should be doing every year. Here's how you get your COVID shot every year. Here's how you need to think of it as like a flu shot. And I'm just interesting to, to see if before the midterms politically, it feels like there's no advantage to, to doing that. Right. And the biggest political advantage for the Dems is to just hit, continue to hit COVID as hard as you can, because that's the one area that you you have that you're polling more positively than other areas. And it's the one thing that people are still looking maybe to the Democratic Party to provide leadership on, not because they're knocking it out of the park, simply because the Republicans have just abandoned the whole the whole concept of the pandemic. Yeah, I agreed. But I think that's where they run the risk of the messaging becomes stale after a while because people become mentally exhausted. Yeah. Because it's the same thing they've heard this entire time. And people are saying, okay, you know, we're going to be almost two years into it. This, like, what is the um, uh, the exit ramp? Uh, what is it yeah. like? Or at least give us something so we know that we're, you know, especially now that we're at the point where we're over. I think we're at almost sixty-seven uh, percent vaccinated as a country. Something around there. I heard that it was over. We're over eighty percent now for the single for one shot, oh, okay. and we're approaching that sixty percent. For two for shots. Two That's shots, where we yeah. are. Okay, wow. But so, now yeah. you got to take in who's boosted, who's not. So there's, there's that, more ways but... to cut it off. I mean, to me, the pandemic was over from a public health perspective, or mostly over, when breakthrough cases happened with the vaccinated. Yeah. That's when it's like, okay, I can't make the 100% argument case that you have to be vaccinated so you don't get this. And vaccination is not going to stop the spread. No, it's not. And it, but it's all about, and this is where people get lost focusing this on. Is, this is the nuanced it's point mitigation. that nobody wants to listen it's to. It's mitigation. Yes. measure if you do if you are a breakthrough case you're likely not going to be hospitalized and you're not going to die and you can see the graphs of who is dying compared um uh based on vaccination rate and it's like night and day it's yeah. all of the unvaccinated those that are being hospitalized much more of the unvaccinated for based on t- duration of time unvaccinated so so yes i mean viruses there's going to be breakthrough cases and people forget even with vaccines against like the measles and uh mumps and everything else that we have vaccinations for there are usually breakthrough cases there's no vaccine that's 100 yeah. percent effective but in all cases vaccines usually mitigate the severity of the disease and that's really what it's all about now every risk mitigation and getting to a point to where even if you do get it as a breakthrough case it's not going to be debilitated yeah. maybe it's like akin to like having a cold and you get over it and that's what we want to see i've talked to a lot of people my age i probably hang out with a, a older crowd than you do brandon probably i mean i've talked to a couple of dudes that i know pretty well who have said when they got covid there was like a four to eight hour period where they were like 
this might be it. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked to one guy who he had to go on a ventilator, and he's oh. like, I've been healthy my whole life. I've never had you know somebody had to like go on that. a ventilator. Yeah, that, that's my worst nightmare. He's like, I mean, that oh. day he's like, I literally thought this this could be this could be it. I, I could be could be going out on this. And it, I mentioned that because it's it's amazing how many people who maybe thought about this in a certain way in comparison to the flu that were absolutely floored when they got it, how serious it was and how terrible they felt. But there's also a group of that population who still won't get the vaccine. Yes. So once you've hit that point, there's only so much you can do pushing on, on the vaccination. You've got right. to start putting other resources to mitigation and how to handle this seasonally like, a, like an endemic flu. Agreed. What it comes down to. What are we talking about next, Brandon? We just wanted to roll through. Uh, we're just going to bounce around to some quick topics this week because there's there's no, nothing dominating the news cycle the last couple of weeks, but there's a ton happening. Yeah, uh, let's see. Um, I was going to say, if you look at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. We did talk about that. I thought you were going to do that. I'm like, wait a minute. Isn't that what we talked about? It's it's interesting to see um, a couple of uh, news cycle items, and so I always like to see. So there's people that I can't stand um, <laughs> in the political space, and so when they get slapped um, pretty handily, particularly those with egos. So Bill O'Reilly and Donald Trump joined <laughs> together for this ego. I, those two don't have any ego. Brandon. Not at what all. are you talking about? I mean, two of the biggest blowhards with big egos. So they joined together for this. Uh, I don't even know what you would call History it. History tour is what it's called. I call it a grievance tour. Well, you know, it's everything that's wrong straight. with America. Yeah. So history slash grievance tour. <laughs> and, you know, and um, they have empty seats. They're not able to sell these tickets. Uh, so they've had to scale back the extent of the tour, which I could not be more thrilled with. I mean, the fact, first of all, disgraced former president who led a coup, the fact that he would go on this national tour and be well-received is just disgusting to me. And then you have somebody like Bill O'Reilly, who was also disgraced, serial sexual harasser, you know, paid out millions to uh, victims. Um, Fox News did on his behalf, and then he was finally fired and terminated. Yeah. So this, I guess, was going to be his big comeback. Uh, <laughs> has not gone so well. It hasn't. I mean, when I think of two men that I would not want to go sit in an arena because this is all this is. They're yeah. an arena. They come out to two chairs and they talk for two hours or, or whatever this is. So it's a it's like a moderated version of what a Trump's rally is with, with Bill O'Reilly, I, I guess, right. is, is what they're trying to do. And the objective of this is from Trump's perspective to set the, the history record straight of his administration and the uh, the stealing of the election, I'm assuming is what their, their thing is. Um Things that give me, like you, love it when somebody who deserves a good whacking from the universe gets one, and those two certainly certainly fall into that category. What are we to take from kind of the lack of enthusiasm for this? I mean, n- number one, this is a horrible idea. This show has yeah. no entertainment <laughs> value to it. The fact that you could get a single human being to buy a ticket is shocking to me. Well, as you and I were talking um, off podcast, I mean, the audience, I, I mean, we could say immediately who the audience is going to be for this, right? <laughs> it's got to be, we said 70 over, mostly white. male, all white, yeah. mo- all conservative, all Republican, and they're just there to get their 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 grievance fix reinforced from the man himself. Yeah. Bill, Bill O'Reilly's a pig, too. If you read through some of the stuff he did at Fox, oh, yeah. it's There's just a- just brutal. So by the way, and I have a little bit of a Bill O'Reilly story, not a personal one, um, but he is also super condescending off air and, and a, a big prick. 
when I was a delegate to the 2012 RNC in Tampa, uh, he was one of the media personalities there. <laughs> and so at the time, I was taking photos with all the media personalities and different people and trying to meet everybody. And I was still on that stage as like a young Republican yeah. where I was like, oh, this is cool. Like yeah. this person, this person. So Bill O'Reilly was flanked by several bodyguards and several people. I didn't even try to go up to him because I saw people who went up to him and like, oh, Bill O'Reilly, can I get your picture? And his immediate response was, get away from me, leave me alone. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, wow. I mean, just like no... Um, not even trying to be cool even, about it. Not just, even yeah. cool about it. Not friendly at all. I mean, didn't even acknowledge or look people in the face. And, you know, these were people, in many cases, there were viewers of his that, you know, tuned in. There were fans. And he treated them, I mean, How? like that. How did that man have the career he had? I mean, Bill O'Reilly, when he was forced out of Fox, he was their number one personality, I yeah. believe. And for years, I mean, he was he was Tucker and Hannity and Ingram before any of those three. He and dominated. He, he used the to have ratings, an audience yeah. bigger than all three of those put, put together. together. And if I, I watched Bill O'Reilly for years because I thought it was a comedy show. I had no idea that this was supposed to be an actually honest news show. And some of the times he had John Stewart on, yeah, magnificent. It was great entertainment. There was nothing news about it. And, and then there's most, nothing news it, about Bill O'Reilly. It became hilarious when Stephen Colbert came along and did a parody did of a parody Bill O'Reilly directly. Yeah. That, that's, that, that's such a great word that these are two old men who are parodies of what they used to be attempting yeah. to become a Relevant lesser again. version of that now. There's nothing. We used to look at that and feel sorry for these people. And now we're buying tickets to the tour there that's what i don't understand because it's pretty pathetic i mean is this all we have left this is grasping at relevancy like the last vestiges of relevancy and and power uh, uh, apparently and it should be something that we like mock and you know look down upon instead of embracing brandon i haven't blamed young people in a while for all of the world's problems so let me let me (laughs) rectify that today why do people it I, I get a feeling that in past generations, once you passed a certain age, you just fell out of favor and out of consciousness with the generation behind you. When, when does that – is that just gone now? Is that – this gets into Chris Wallace. Chris yeah. Wallace is leaving Fox. Guess how old Chris Wallace is? I didn't know this until you told He's me. He's 74. Yeah. What? Why not – isn't the move retire? Why is he going to CNN Plus, which I think is hilarious <laughs> that he's going to CNN's uh, streaming service. And he's got to be that that streaming service's most valuable talent asset right now, I would think. Oh, I, I would agree. And I mean, he's there to anchor the whole the whole thing. You're right. I mean, he's not retiring and he's he's very. So I, I assume he thinks he has like another 10 years left in him or, or he's got something to say. And he left Fox because he wants to say it. I, I have, you know, and Chris Wallace is one of the last, like, I think, old generation newsmen who took their job seriously, you know, um, non-biased, would grill everybody equally. I mean, his loss, and, and Fox News may not see it this way, but it's big for Fox because they have nobody left with any credibility. Brett Baer is the only uh, one he's I the can only come one. up with. Um, yeah. I mean, everybody else has left. All of the straight news anchors, if yep. you remember. Um, Shep Smith left. Yep, and he's on CNBC now with his yeah. own show. Like, there's nobody left. A lot of their straight line news reporters and correspondents have also already left. I mean, so they're going to be left with Brett Baer and then all of these pundits, rabid pundits. Um, but their news division is being hollowed out like crazy. Yeah. If you remember, 
remember um, Fox News was the first network to call Arizona for Biden. Yeah. And they took a beating over that with Trump, yeah. you know, blasting them. Chris Steyerwalt left Fox because of that and joined the dispatch. Oh, of all that's the right. shit he I forgot got about over that. Arizona. Yeah. Was he the one that made the call? Was he the election center? Yeah. yeah. Because I can't remember of him. There was another guy who was part of that election center team, the data guy, who got fired. Like he was actually <laughs> fired. And he was their smart data guy who was brilliant. Like yeah. actually throughout the industry, CNN, MSNBC, like thought this guy was amazing. Yeah. And then Fox fires him because Yeah, I don't I don't know if Starwalt did the numbers or is he just like the director of the I think he's the director, whatever, but the but he, and so he he's left, like, I gotta go. But the numbers guy got let go and he was super smart. And so, yeah, their news of vision is being hollowed out, uh, which is interesting to see. And Chris Wallace's dad is Mike Wallace. Yes. Like 60 Minutes Mike Wallace. Yep, like 60 you know, Minutes, Old CBS. school, pre-internet. Because when did Mike Wallace start with CBS? Like, good God. It had to be in the 60s, I would yeah, think. Late I mean, 50s, early 60s. This has been in his DNA. I, I, I appreciate the fact that... So Chris Wallace's contract ended, I believe, at the end of the year or the beginning of, of 2022. Okay. So he had a decision to make anyway. I, I do appreciate the fact that Wallace is leaving Fox. Yeah. And I think we can all draw some conclusions. It makes to a statement, why, which is, yeah. But I want him to tell us why. Right. It doesn't do any good to say that I left that place for bad reasons, but I'm not going to. If you're pulling this move this late in your career, I would think you're doing it to play elder statesman role and you're going to start lecturing people on what's wrong with the news and hopefully maybe how we can fix it. I would hope so because he has a powerful voice and I think people would listen. And so we need as many voices in the room as possible to drown out the, the crazies. And when uh, Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes from The Dispatch quit being commentators or on-air talent with Fox, the, the report that I read said Bear and Wallace went with them into Fox management's office to say, oh, really? listen, we've gone too far. This what? Patriot purge or whatever crap that Carlson's pulling, it's not only is it, is it not news, it's not entertainment, it's incredibly dangerous. So Wallace and Bear went in with those two to say, hey, we completely support what they're doing. And I'm glad you mentioned those two because I don't think we had a chance to discuss that on the podcast. But that also sent reverberations, yeah. I think, through the industry, the fact that those two left because uh, they've and been with the network a long they time. They pointed right at Tucker Carlson and said, yeah. I, I can put up with a lot. Jonah Goldberg on his podcast this week said that – because people were talking, well, you were going to get fired from Fox anyway, blah, blah, blah. He said that his work on Fox represented half of his income. I was like, wow, one, oh. how much are they paying people yeah. to be on those panels? And two, that puts it into, into focus a little bit that, hey, this wasn't – this ain't a painless decision. Yeah. Now, I did this, and I'm going to pay a price for it, but it gets to a point where – you didn't have any choice. Yeah, at that point. If you want to have a soul, you can't snuggle. If you consider yourself a serious person, you can't you can't be on Fox right now, can you? No, I don't think so. But speaking of people, that's a good segue into news personalities that do not have a soul. So this story <laughs> is a little bit over a week old now, but relevant. It blew up last week when I was in Vegas. So Laura Logan, who uh, is a correspondent reporter. Hey, she has no agenda. Right. That, that's the name of her program. Laura Logan has no agenda. <laughs> so ironic. So she started with CBS um, and at one point was a pretty well-respected reporter. Yeah. She was Emmy Award winning, um, did a lot of in-depth pieces reported from the Middle East. Um, now, there has been a running undercurrent throughout her career where she's had a little bit of an issue with the truth, where she's embellished from time to time. <laughs> That's one way to put it. So um, it's interesting that it's not ever been dramatic enough like uh, to get uh, to get her like in serious trouble, but it's been enough to where she's you know received a little bit of a slap down. 
So last week, um, she has this program. Um, she started off on Fox Nation, which is the crazy internet it's the arm streaming service. Stream, so yeah. yeah, when you really go get a bunch of kooky on, you go yeah. to Fox Stream. You go to Fo- so um, and so her profile is heightened since since then. But last week she made a statement um, comparing um, Dr. Fauci to Joe Mengele. Yeah, that's a good. Um, one. And then she doubled down on it and said that she's been hearing that comparison from everybody around the world she talks to. I don't know who this everybody is. Sure, which I guess has to make it right. I, right, obviously, it, it's the truth. It's such an insane, ridiculous comparison. And again, it's the use by the far right, these these Nazi and Holocaust comparisons that just won't stop. But what was interesting is the Auschwitz Museum in Poland yeah. Yeah. tweeted out a criticism of her and with a quote, and she reacted by blocking them on Twitter. But she didn't stop there. She start, started elevating uh, tweets, retweeting um, others on the far right who were critical of the Auschwitz Museum. So let this sink in. She is retweeting critiques of the Auschwitz Museum in Poland. Um, and then she took it even a step further. She started retweeting um, individuals who claim that HIV is a hoax and doesn't mm. exist. Other viruses well, are made course. up. And so we – and it made me think, like, how does somebody like her, who started out as a well-respected Emmy Award-winning CBS journalist, get to the point where she's making ridiculous Nazi comparisons and retweeting people who say HIV is fake? Like, <laughs> I'm, how I'm, does this happen? I'm trying to think through in your career, Brandon, this is what I'm thinking through. Have you ever had? Have you ever had to make a a moral choice at a job to say, "Hey, I just can't do that. That that's just a bridge too far for me. I, I know this might hurt uh, me. I know I may be out of a job that I like or a career that that's growing or a good company, but I just I can't I can't I can't get there." I don't think yeah. I ever have have I, had to make that decision. No, there were times that I thought that I may have to based on yeah. a particular client or something. And so I had worked out in my head what I would do if it got to that point. But I never actually had to to reach that point. But many times I've worked out like I'm going to have to make this decision and be comfortable with it and say, like, I can't do this or I, you know, it's just I can't morally agree to this. I've just never had any place I've ever worked dangle a bunch of money in front of me maybe to change my mind about something or yeah. to do something I didn't want to do. I've never had to make that that decision. Right. But I think it's obvious. Laura Logan saw the writing on the wall and basically said, if you want to keep that top tier status and you're at Fox, this is the lane you have to get into because they're actively shutting down like honest reporting lanes. Yeah. And they don't want that. They want Laura Logan calling Fauci Dr. Bingale. That You don't have to tell her to do that. They'll just do it. I heard somebody say that the secret to Fox, and you hear this all the time, well, Fox never told me to do one thing while I was there because they hire people they don't have to. They know they're going to do it on they their own. They know Laura yeah. Logan will do, will do anything, say anything, report anything to keep on air, to keep her name above the marquee, and to keep that check coming in. It's publicity, attention, that yeah. drives ratings. And so in the end, it works out for them. It's just like Tucker Carlson you know, when he was blasted, rightly so, for this uh, special that he was going to have on January 6th, claiming that it was an inside job. That's and the all Patriot this. Purge. Patriot Purge. But he, there were no repercussions for that um, at Fox News Forum. I mean, he did it suffer no. because of that. I mean, if anything— the, Somebody had to sign off on that. Right. Somebody had to say, cool, good job, Tucker. We're going to put that on our streaming service. 
And I mean, and he's gone way beyond that. And I mean, if we want to talk about a few Tuckerisms, let's see, within the past few weeks, he has elevated um, Alex Jones and said that Alex Jones is more of a journalist than anybody in the mainstream media. So do you think anybody at Fox directs Tucker's behavior and said, hey, Tucker, um, let's stay away from Alex Jones? I don't no, think so. I don't. Not at all. I think they give him free reign to do what he wants. And then recently, I mean, he's been like a uh, mouthpiece of propaganda for Russia. Mm, um, yeah. You know, with the yeah. crisis and the potential for <laughs> conflict in Ukraine, with Russia um, acquiring more territory. I mean, he came out and compared it to the border situation. So it's just Russia defending their border. This is what they should be able to do. So between Josh Hawley talking about how woke feminism is killing masculine men. I got to mess with my shoe here in the United States. I, that's kind of a, and then Tucker Carlson basically gets on and says, we should never send military stuff to the Ukraine. It's ridiculous. I mean, they're, they're advocating basically if Putin wants to walk into Ukraine and take it, just do it. we should let him. And, now, and, aren't and, these the people that rightfully so in the summer just ripped the Biden administration up and down over Afghanistan, which, right. which, which they deserved. But I thought the, the reason we were mad at Biden was how we pulled out and how we abandoned people. And we had a military obligation. We abandoned our allies. So we're not defending you Ukraine, know, our obligations. Now we're just – now everybody's cool. And don't get me wrong. I don't think we should roll troops on the ground in U- Ukraine. But right. – but, but we do have longstanding relations with Ukraine, and uh, we have a relationship there where we have been very strong in trying to combat aggression from Russia and um, minimize incursions. And, and granted, this has been an issue over the past several years, starting with Crimea, when Russia yeah. invaded Crimea, Crimea, that region of Ukraine. So to completely backtrack from it and to just broadcast to Russia, you can have it. I mean, that's ridiculous. This is the same—again, the right is supposed to be anti-Russia— the remnants of the Soviet Union, the authoritarian Putin, who was a creature of the KGB, rose up through the KGB and uh, was despondent uh, that the Soviet Union ever fell in the first place. And yet we have, you know, the new right completely embracing Putin. I mean, (laughs) and Russia. uh, Hungary. They seem to like the the authoritarian over there. I I just, if if you're going to do something for Ukraine, the time to do it is now. If you're going to do something militarily, do it before... but do it before Russia has the chance to make a move. I don't think Russia is going to make a move into Ukraine because they know we, we, we're we not going to let that stand. You think it's all kind of bluster right I, I now? I think to... this is just some bluster. And I, I... In fact, if we know in Putin and the way he operates, it might simply be a way to detract and distract from what's happening domestically. He has yeah. a tendency to make these pronouncements and to get um, very bellicose when – um, you know, there's problems on the economic front domestically and uh, where he's facing criticism and he tries to um, divert attention away from that. And big military invasions, that's not Putin's thing. He, he's more – he's a spy. Like you said, he's a KGB guy. Yeah. He's the guy who – that rubs, you know, poison on the doorknob and, and murders people that way in these right. weird – uh, James Bond type ways. And that's happened many times, yeah. I uh, think this is, again, Putin, you know, feeling some pressure at home. This is always a good way to relieve it. And he knows Biden's in a very, very weak place, both internationally and domestically. And why not? There's no penalty to it. Send the troops over, cause some stink, get your name. I, I think that's all that he's doing at this point in time. Right. I think he's just sticking his thumb in, in Biden's eye because he, he can. Yeah. Chris Christie wrote a book that apparently nobody in the country wanted <laughs> to read. Despite doing this, he has spent an inordinate mm-hmm. amount of time on CNN doing this like 
book tour practically. He um, sparred with Nicole uh, Wallace, Wallace on yeah. MSNBC. Did so that. He did the full publicity tour. I mean, you you can't help but see him everywhere and hawking this book, and, and yet he hasn't been able to, to sell it. 2,300 copies Ugh. is what it sold the first two weeks it was out. And I think part of it is, I think, well-earned uh, cynicism towards Christie because it's like, what lane are you in? You yeah. did not speak up when you were in the administration. Um, and now you've suddenly found your voice and you're suddenly um, a critic. But then in the same breath, you've said that you would still support Trump if he was a nominee in 2024. So yeah. how, how does that, I don't, that doesn't I, jibe. I, I did not read this book because the reviews on it were terrible. But to your point, what, what is this book for? Is this, this book some ways sounds like it was written as a way to to normalize Trump for 2024, yeah. to say, hey, this part, these things were bad, but these parts were good. And to your point, the book ends with, and if he runs again, I would be okay with that. But also, <laughs> I might run for president. Yeah. And so if it, I run for president, here's the things you shouldn't like about Trump. And, and so he had, and he has clearly said that he will make the decision to run for president regardless of Trump being in the field or not. And But at the same time, he's like trying to find this lane where he can get anti-Trump support but also like play nice with trump people to yeah. still have and you can't do both and he comes out looking wishy-washy and, and and again it's just i don't get which audience he's playing to because nobody is going to be happy with that well isn't christy shtick a tough guy isn't that what he's supposed to be the tough guy yeah well the tough guy is liz cheney who just stands up straight says what she over thinks, and over again does not care, care about the doesn't bend doesn't yeah. yield that's not what he's doing no i think christie is doing the most disingenuous and the most cynical form of politics where he's basically just chumming the water with a whole bunch of stuff trying to see what sinks and what floats what sticks, yeah. and then he'll he'll see if there's a lane there for 2024 and see what he wants to do i mean just this week he made a statement apparently a day or two ago where um, you know he said that in the days leading up to January 6th, Trump was just surrounded by people who told him what he wanted to hear, and they fed into <laughs> what happened on January 6th. And again, it's like, well, where were you? You know, why did you pick up the phone and say, "Hey, this is BS"? Like, I mean, what's going on? <laughs> he almost killed you. I think Chris Christie yeah. mentally was one of those like dudes, older dudes. I was thinking, I've heard the last couple of weeks who said, "Thought shit, I'm going to die." Yeah, he spent well, 13 days in the ICU. Right, and. Chris Christie is a giant fat man. And so he was at greater risk. But yeah, he was in the ICU. The only reason he came out of that was because he was given Regeneron, the antibody treatment, um, or he would have likely died. And so that's what I don't understand is like Trump basically almost killed you. And yet you still have some allegiance to this guy. On purpose. Yeah. Mark Meadows' book, it comes out, he, he tested positive before, before the, the debate. Before the debate with Biden. With and Biden. Be, and before meeting with the Gold Star families, I military mean, families. Like, if, what? if you're just a human being, do you, you, you don't do that, do you? I mean, in that moment, I think Trump knew if I cancel out, because I'm trying to think of my, my the, the timeline correctly. Because all that shit where he got COVID and the ridiculous shots of him oh. in the hospital that he's riding in the 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 the, uh, the suburban, you know, he took his victory tour in front of the with hospital with his mask off, and then he comes the back Service to the, the, the thing. Was yeah. that all? I think was that all after or before the first debate? I think it was after. That was after, was yeah, after? because okay. it was right after the first debate that his team uh, announced that he was That's sick. true. Um, and so now we know contagious. that it was days before yeah. he knew, yeah, and was contagious. So and he sat in on. a room with Chris Christie for days, yeah. days, knowing he was positive, preparing for this this debate, and didn't tell anybody. Yep. And then 
Christy spends 13, 14 days in the hospital and still comes out and write a book that half-ass endorses him. If there's one thing the American people just despise and is a sucker, yeah. and that's what Chris Christie has shown himself to be. We, we like tough guys, but you really, but you have to be tough, even if it's fake tough. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll do that. We don't really expect you to do the hard things that nobody does anymore. But Christie can't even play the part of tough guy anymore. He doesn't sound tough, and, I mean, he's not consistent. He's trying to thread a needle that you can't thread, and no. so he comes across just looking like he's all over the place. Brandon, I what, mean, how can you embrace that? Why has nobody in the Republican Party learned that, that Trump is it, – it's the frog and the scorpion. He's going to, to sting you at you. some point. He always does. Look at what he just did to Benjamin Net- Netanyahu. Yeah. 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 12 hours after they called the election for Biden, Netanyahu, just a basic bland, I'd like to thank the the future president, Biden, just just a basic statement of acknowledging that Biden's the president now. And Trump just went off on him and ended it with fuck Netanyahu. Yeah. Fuck that guy. And the relationship with Netanyahu and the benefit of his presidency for Israel is one of the cornerstones that he's going to run on again. Yeah. In- so it's insane to me. But again, it shows you how Trump thinks. Like, it's all or nothing. You have sl- slavish, undying loyalty to him um, and anything less than that, and he just tosses you aside. I mean, he went further in the rant today because he's like, Netanyahu never wanted peace. If it wasn't for me, Israel would have been destroyed. I mean, just on and on. Just ridiculous. And he's not going to let up. That's who he is. Brandon, I, I can remember, because I am significantly old, I mean, I can remember the tail end of stagflation. I can yeah. remember interest rates at like 9 10 11%. Oh. I can remember my parents sitting around with neighbors, you know, having discussions about how much things cost and having to pick and choose at times. Do you have a win button? A what? A win button. Do you remember when? Whip inflation now. That was the moniker. I don't remember that. So when Ford was president. um, It was so bad they had to brand it. They branded (laughs) win, whip inflation now. So that was an anti-inflation campaign. And I actually, as a political geek, I have a political button from that time because people were wearing these buttons that said win on it. Um, Yeah. Because it was so ingrained in that time frame because inflation was uh, run away. For some reason, I just remember the news, my parents, every adult that I heard talk about this. Just blame Carter. Carter yeah. was the one that this is all his fault. He's not doing something, and we should blame him. But really, we could stop the inflation stuff anytime we want to. Just raise interest rates. Yeah, it, it, it's a pretty easy formula. So an economist from do. London was on, um, I think, either MSNBC or CNN the other day, and was asking why we haven't done that yet. Well, I think we haven't done that because we know that the economy is full with a lot of zombie companies right now. Yeah. That only survive because we have access to cheap capital. And once you dry that up, you're going to see – I think you're going to see a significant spike in unemployment because there are a lot of companies out there that are simply surviving because they can go back to the well because money's so cheap right now. Yeah. When that ends, I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of companies that have, have survived off that That's are, are going to come to an end. But there's an inherent risk in waiting too long to raise interest rates there and is. put a stamp on inflation if it continues to climb. And we're already at the highest rates in about 40 years at this point. And the, the interest rate from the Fed staying at zero, which is basically that, – that's the interest rate that they charge banks, right? Yeah. That, that's not a sign of a healthy economy. No, that is You can't stay there forever. No. Trump was always up, up uh, 
Powell's ass to go to zero or even negative interest rates because Trump is a business guy and a real estate developer. Right. Free money is always the way to go. <laughs> yeah. But that's not really that's not really how this should work. No. There should be a risk uh, involved with lending. Yeah. Because that way you think more thoroughly about That's how you prevent speculation you and Absolutely. risky investments and, and a house of cards that could topple like what we saw during the Great Recession. If there's no risk to loaning money, why not loan more money? Yeah. Even maybe when you don't need it or put it to something that maybe wasn't warranted in the first place. So the inflation thing is interesting because every single Republican that I hear speaking that's in office and all of the, the conservative media, this is their, this is their issue. This is what they're jumping on because you can stretch this out now to it impacts the base, the base that they know that they need in 2022 and 2024, mostly rural, uh, lower educated whites and Hispanics. They know that they've got to find a message to resonate with them. Gas prices and how much stuff costs everybody it's an animated everybody issue. has a way yes it animates everybody because it impacts everybody well and and it, of course it impacts those voters on the lower strungs of the economic ladder even more mm. so i mean it's not only more of their take-home pay but it cuts deeper i mean and you can argue it definitely impacts everybody but it impacts them more i mean other people can make adjustments and account for that but the the pain the economic pain is felt more at the lower end on those staples yeah and i think that I think the Dems, by how they've ignored this issue for so long, have backed themselves now into a hole. Because you ignored it, now you have to come out and admit it's a problem. So you've already given another talking point. It was a problem six months ago. Yeah. Why are you so late to the game? And in honesty, this was going to happen to whatever party was in power. Yeah. Because now the, the Dems are in a bad spot. Do you raise your, your interest rate at the Fed, Fed level, which helps bring inflation under control, but has negative impacts to businesses downstream? Whatever decision they make or whatever they decide to live with, there's going to be some pain involved that they're just going to have to endure because there's, there's just simply no way, there's no way around it. If right. we're going to bring prices down, people are flushed with cash now too, Yeah, which I don't, I, I just find that I, I'm willing to, to, to accept that argument on face value, but just being an adult for a long time and having <laughs> families and stuff, yeah, $2,000 check don't go very far. No. And I got it that you got more unemployment than you got 300 bucks a week, more $1,200 a month, more or whatever in, in unemployment. I've been on unemployment a few times. It doesn't it come doesn't close to covering yeah. anything. So I, I just I find it hard to mind to wrap my mind around that there are tons of lower middle class and middle class folks who are just sitting on this mountain of cash that the government sent them. But the government did throw over two trillion dollars into the economy. There's no doubt that there's some of that that's driving some of this. Yeah. But it's hard to get your mind around what is the actual scale and scope of that. It is, and I haven't seen anything that really does it well um because i mean everything i read it's more kind of anecdotal and it's describing you know generally how you know it's impacting families and and you know what type of reserves they have but but you're right we're kind of in this weird position like there's yeah. no good answer without there being an impact somewhere especially at a time when um as far as employment we're actually doing very well i mean we're at i like mean 4.2 percent yeah but another four billion people dropped out in october yeah so we're, I think we're going we're gonna to see that number grow, and the number of 
And one of the areas that it hit the most was folks like me, close to retirement, kind of there. Does this make sense anymore? Right. Also, there were a lot of older folks that worked part-time or three-quarters time that just didn't come back after that. It'll be interesting to see over the next six months when they start diving into those numbers and get more data, who really dropped out of the workforce. Yeah, Was I'd it, be curious to see that too. In my my theory would be it'd be people that traditionally wouldn't have been there anyway. It'd be people in their 70s working retail jobs, people close to retirement, things like that. My guess would be that that's the, that's the, the core of this group that, that's dropped out of, of seeking employment. People that point. just wanted some extra spending money. But if you listen to like Ben Shapiro, Hugh Hewitt, and the, the conservatives that, that take up my, my podcast feed, I mean, this is just – Brandon, there are millions of people out there, working class people who are now sitting on substantial amounts of money. And, and these people were just given this great gift, and they're never going to go back to work. Now that they've got a taste, Brandon, for how good European-style socialists would be, they simply want the United States government to cradle to grave them with, with anything that they would need. Have you ever met a person that that's what they want from the United States government? I, I have it. So is it insinuation that either. it's going to be akin to like a hunger strike? It's going to be like a work strike? They just wait until the government I, relents? And I, then I, they, I don't know the what narrative they're trying and, to, to promote Yeah, here. I don't. I, th- what they're getting back to do is this it good old-fashioned— that we went through this, mm-hmm. I mean, entire, entirely artificially created um, employment— um, buckle where we basically saw employment um, tighten and restrict yeah. because of the pandemic. And we literally, you know, shut everything down. And so you had places close up and, and people that were um, either lost their jobs entirely, or they were put, um, you know, on in a holding pattern. So it's not like this happened in a vacuum and people just chose not to work. I yeah. mean, we went through a, a, a period where this was really kind of forced down on everybody for good reason. And so, I, again, I just I feel like they kind of ignore that whole aspect of it. Um, so it's not like these people were, you know, double dipping and, you know, working and getting yeah. benefits. I mean, they were getting one because they, you know, they were on hold for the other. Um, and it, it also ignores the reality that, you know, the, the great resignation, which I don't really like that name, but that the lack of a better name, a lot of people during this time frame are rethinking what they wanted to do and sure. what type of jobs. So you have people that are changing industries wholesale. So that's impacting labor markets and going to completely different industries. Um, you had some like, um, two parent, uh, two, uh, worker households yeah. who decided to go down to one, um, even further after this happened. And so, there's just all these different elements. It's not like you can just point to one thing and say, that's it. And I think people, too, for the, the year of intensity of the pandemic, really got to take stock in what they spent money on and what they didn't. Yeah. And they stopped going out to eat. And they stopped that's going out point. to movies. Entertainment. And everything, suddenly yeah. you look down and say, it's Concerts, pretty, movies, if sports, got, all of that If you've got a couple stuff. kids, it's pretty easy to spend four, five, six hundred bucks a month on just eating. Yeah. Just eating out, just running to two and three soccer practices a week, two and three soccer games per weekend. It just, I think people too looked said, okay, what, what do we really need? What do we really need to spend money on? And I think people are, are found ways, like you said, hey, maybe one, both parents don't need to work. We can rejigger this around where we can make a living without both having to work. What, what I wish they would call this is the great finger to employment mm-hmm. because I, I still haven't heard anybody say, what we need to do with all this data we're getting with all these people dropping out of work is we need to examine what is it about work that is causing people to flee? 
Yeah. What, what is it culturally, economically? Why can't we all start the conversation with, if you've been an adult for any length of time and worked full time for any length of time, I don't have to tell you work <laughs> sucks. It can be a punishing soul sucking experience. I, I'm disappointed that we're not starting with the most obvious reason. What is it about the world of work that first chance people get to, to see something different? A lot of them took it. Yeah. Well, and up until this point, the employers always held all the cards, right? I mean, they dictated workplace practices, yeah. the format, when you had to be there, work style habits. And, you know, we've learned that people can work differently and still be as productive. And people are saying, hey, wait, you know, we adjusted habits and routines. We don't necessarily want to go back no. to the way it was before. Like the world has changed and we expect employers to change with it. Um, and so, you know, the pandemic may be over, or may be near over, uh, but this isn't over. And so there's an expectation now that I think we will never go back to the way things used to be. And people realize they have more bargaining power now um, and they're using it. And I think that part of it is people are just more upfront. And I think there's, like you said, a variety of factors, but when you have time to reflect and really think on it and what you want out of life and what you want out of work, um, you think differently. I mean, yeah. when you're busy um, day in, day out, and you're putting in the hours, you don't have time to really give it a lot of thought. It's just about, you know, doing what you need to survive and um, and what brings in the paycheck. And, and that's it. What this story got me thinking is how many times during the week, just through your normal day, do you interact with somebody who's over 70 working that maybe, you know, shouldn't work yeah. or if they didn't have to wouldn't. And how many times did that mean you could get a table somewhere or you could get checked out faster or it just kept the pace going as you didn't notice that service was suffering. Right. And if you take all of those folks out, what, what does, what, what does it look like just interacting with the economy? If millions of those folks who filled gaps in places just aren't working anymore. That's a great, great way to describe it because it immediately calls to mind, people that are older that could be retired that just did that as yeah. kind of a side hustle, um, you know, and service uh, positions throughout the economy, uh, you know, whether it be greeters or uh, uh, cross guard, uh, cross yeah. guards for schools, um, bus drivers. There's a number of those people that veer towards the retirement side who are no longer there. So that's, and if I'm going to make 15 to 20 bucks an hour, why wouldn't I just DoorDash, Uber and do things yeah. I can do totally on my own terms and my totally own time. Well, and the upward pressure now on salaries across all industries. I mean, if you can go somewhere like that and make more and maybe yeah. substantially more than what you were making, um, before, why not? I mean, these companies now are bending over backwards, trying to, um, you know, outdo each other in terms of benefits and in terms of bonuses, starting bonuses, which are just, I, incredible. I just love the, 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 the power needle has turned slightly ish, maybe a quarter turn, let's say yeah. towards employees, not employers everybody's freaking out, right? <laughs> Everybody is losing their mind. This is a disaster. Oh my God. Oh my God. But this is oh the market. God. If you believe in the free market, I mean, this should be embraced, right? Sure. I mean, this is, and it's markets responding, but this time to employee demands, um, and to labor demands. And, you know, it's, it necessitates employers to be more responsive and creative with what they do to appeal and to attract workers. And, um, yeah, I mean, in a market economy, you know, that can and should happen. You could argue that it didn't happen for long enough. I mean, things were static for so long, 
but hey, that's that's what it's about. Well, like in politics, where you didn't have to run on your stance on abortion because Roe v. Wade was in right. place. Oh, think, that world has changed. I, I think what we're seeing in businesses is you didn't have to compete like this for employees before, yeah. but you're going to have to now. Yeah. And if you want real high-end people, you're really going to have to compete because they're going to be in much more demand. Absolutely. So let's end with, yeah, the uh, the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade because – was it last week was when the oral arguments for the case out of the Dobbs case out of Mississippi hit, yes. hit the Supreme Court? And that's when we started seeing the um, justices' questions to and understanding kind of where this was going. I mean, I get it. It's hard to predict what the Supreme Court will do, but they're clearly giving off signals. They're going to throw Roe v. Wade out. Yeah. I mean, this definitely looks like it's going to be, if I had to guess, it's going to be a five to four decision. Um, with- do you think they'll go as far as overturning Roe? And returning it to the states? That's that's the question, because, I, I mean, they can decide this case without going that far, and they may opt to do so just because this court has been um, hesitant, reluctant about uh, doing case-shattering decisions or yeah. precedent-shattering decisions, I should say. The only issue, though, if they don't go as far as overturning Roe, it um, ensures that there are, is going to be a flood of smaller cases that make it their way up to the court that they're going to have to decide that are going to be nuance driven um, on abortion. So if they did decide and just overruled Roe and send it back to the states, um, that would stop the flow of abortion related cases to them. But I don't know that they're um, uh, that they're willing to go that far. Uh, I I think either way, it's going to be a five to four decision, though. I see Roberts siding with the three liberals, thinking that this is a bridge too far, even, uh, you know, how far they go. But I don't know. So we, we definitely know Roberts has an eye on what is the legacy. legacy as an institution. Yeah. And he has ruled in several cases with an eye towards making sure that the public feels that the Supreme Court is responsive to and understands the social and political environment we're in today. And I think that's I think that's a good approach for a supreme the head of the Supreme Court to to make. So there's also the the idea that there's a big difference between a five four and a six three decision. So at some point, Roberts is going to have to decide: one, am I taking that that kind of preserve the institutional value of the court and preserving? Or, or making this connection between we uh, this court understands what the public wants and they take that into uh, account when they are deciding these things and they're going to make sure that the court decisions track the way that public opinion is is going. If he takes that position, then you want something more five four. You, yeah. you you've got to stack a coalition together that if he decides to join that, that makes it six three or seven two or something that says. Okay, this wasn't a close one. This was how the the, va- the more than just the five four. This is the way the court wants to go. I think I think he sees value in putting something together with a six three to stay away from. We were just one vote off, and it feels like he's done that a few times. Well, and I think with decisions, if it's a decision that's more um, ambiguous, where it doesn't do away with Roe completely, it stops short of uh, repealing Roe, then he'd be more likely to do that and go with the six three. Um, so it's just, it's hard to know kind of where they're going to land on this as far as how, to the extent, if they go all the way up to row, but don't overturn it or completely overturn it, which reminds me. So what, what was the, cause I can't recall now, 
Roe v. Wade itself, what was the uh, decision on that? Was it a 6-3 or 5-4? I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. It was probably 5-4. Yeah, I'm curious now. Go back and look at that. Yeah, I just, if you, if you need, to me, if you, if you want any proof that the Republican Party is leaderless, this is, this is what I would point you to. Because if the Republican Party had a clear leader, that was not Donald Trump, somebody that had some political savvy about them, some, some sense of history about them, and some directional influence on the Republican Party, the Republicans would go nowhere near this. Oh, yeah. So you're telling me heading into the first midterm of Biden's uh, pre- uh, presidency, we are sitting here in perfect shape to avalanche win the House and take back the Senate paving the way for Trump in 2024. And I mean, we're on autopilot because the Dems, because of where, because one, the nature that they're in power and the weirdness of coming off this, this COVID thing, the path couldn't be any easier for us right now. Why? <laughs> Why bring this into the mix? And, and here's something too. If you don't think the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe, why take the case? Yeah. The Supreme Court gets to decide what cases they take. Right. They took this case for a specific reason. So it to, has the power to reset the political landscape does. ahead of next year's midterms. I, yeah. Brandon, you've got to explain this to me. You need suburban women. You're going nowhere nationally without suburban women. Why pick the abortion fight? It makes no sense. No sense. It's like, in some ways, it could be parallel to Afghanistan and Biden. There, there, there's, there's the status quo that, or some version of the status quo that could probably be maintained, doesn't make anybody happy, but it doesn't animate anybody either. Well, and Why I not think just the do that? Is there are many elected Republicans who are, um, if you ask them behind closed doors, they're deathly afraid of yes. the Supreme Court taking this on because of what it does. Because they have been able to use the abortion issue as a fundraising uh, wedge and as a political wedge um, in elections for decades now, um, but if you know the law changes, that they're, they're no longer able to use that. It doesn't become an animating issue for their side. It becomes an animating issue for the other side. And the reason I say they have they, it's a, it's an example of a political party with no political leadership because a political leader would have stood in front of a group and said, "Abortion. We need the problem more than we need the solution." That is just the political reality of what this is. We fundraise off of this. We animate our voting base off of this. The Supreme Court is linked to this. We need this issue in the exact state that it is right now. Don't you dare in 2022 when we are ready to seize seize power all through through the legislative branch cement our power onto the court and the legislative branch and pave the way for us back to power. And you're going to put all of that in jeopardy over this. To me, this move politically makes absolutely no sense. And is the only thing that gives the Democrats the smallest sliver of possibility of holding on to legislative power in 2022. But I just, I just don't get it. What, what's the upside? Again, we're taking all the moral issues off the table. I am not arguing for more abortion. I am not even arguing that the Democrats haven't gone way overboard with, I guess on my side of the aisle now, abortion is some sacred right that, uh, yeah. I, what happened to safe, legal, and rare? 
I mean, I, I am very And that's a problem. Neither side has allowed for nuance Correct. in most of the countries in the middle on that. You know, most of the country is does not want abortion on demand. They want some reasonable restrictions, but they want to keep Roe v. Wade in place. They don't want to just but abolish. This a, is a great know, point. The, the only way we're going to talk about abortion as Republicans and Democrats is beating each other up. Yeah. It's, we're going to do it with a ball bat in our hand. We don't need that for 2022. We've got the wind at our back and we're going downstream here, folks. Don't don't pick this up. So I thought the timing was interesting. Yeah, I, I thought it again showed that you know the Republicans are not playing 4D chess because if they were, this is something they would they would avoid. Yeah, well, and clearly they're not. I mean, it's. I mean, I think we like to talk about the Democrats being in disarray because they have the White House and the, the Senate and the House tenuously, both of those. But the Republican Party itself too is has been in disarray for the last four or five years. If, and, I, if I'm Trump, hey, I'm writing in 2024 with, I can put two more justices on the Supreme Court. Yeah. What makes that a more animating issue is if abortion is still legal. Yeah. So if it's not, you're, then you're taking you don't have that as an the issue. Table politically, again, not talking about the moral things of abortion. You're politically taking something off the table that helped you win the last time, I, the whole thing. Just well, and there, there are many, there are several base voters who are pro-life who voted for Trump solely because of the abortion issue, even though they can't stand him. And so if abortion is no longer an issue and it's illegal, um, why would they vote for him in yeah. 2024? If, if one of your big hot buttons is not judges on courts to stop abortion, then there's, there, that's one less reason to vote for Trump. Yeah. And maybe for a lot of people, a very animating reason to vote for Trump. Exactly. Uh, let's end with, are you doing anything fun? Somebody asked me if I need fun plans for today. And I'm like, no, not a for single today. one. <laughs> what is a fun plan anymore? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, Vegas was fun. I just did that. So I love Vegas. Of, uh, and I love going to Vegas when Joe like has some silly HR convention or something. And, and I just get to go like the whole day by myself, which is a lot of fun. Oh yeah. Usually I just take a bunch of edibles and see how lost I can get in <laughs> Caesar's palace, which I can get lost in Caesar's palace for, by the way, they have that hours. like huge, like gigantic dispensary that's nearby near the strip. Planet been... 13. Yeah. That is the that's biggest the dispensary. Oh my in gosh. The world. It's gigantic. If Apple sold weed, that's what that would look like. Yeah. That's what that store is. I love going to that store because it's, it's just pretty got a great slick, vibe. too. It's almost Very like the slick. apple of dispensaries. Very slick. Yeah. It, it is the apple of weed dispensaries. I remember that they're so busy. When, um, and I didn't go <laughs> yeah. this last time, but the time before, like you, I had to text like um, a reservation that you get a number and yeah, then they call you by number. And if you're in Vegas great. on a Friday night around 11 o'clock, just take a walk over to Planet 13 or one of the biggest dispensaries. And it is, it's insane. And they have like a cafe and a restaurant attached yeah, now, too. They so, do. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure in 2024 Missouri will go full rack. I mean the the medical card passed would, at like yeah. 60%. So there's 130,000ish people that have medical cards. They're all going to vote yes. So Well, it's so easy to get a medical yeah. card. So it's one step away from just Yeah, you know, I mean full it's 25 bucks. You you attend a Zoom session with a doctor <laughs> who tells you pot can't kill you, smoke as much as you want and goes over a list of things that it may possibly help. Because what the doctor is doing to get your medical card, they're not saying you have a condition and this is a medical treatment for it. Yeah. They're saying you potentially could benefit medically ah. by smoking pot. So, and you could just say I have migraines and insomnia and that's, that go. covers that. But yeah, Vegas has got its act together in the, uh, in the weed area. 
Well, and so many states do now. I mean, it's only a matter of time. I mean, I forgot where we are as far as count goes, but I want to say we're... New York just went online. But yeah, it, it's going to be even more. So, yeah. And again, why hasn't Biden pulled that out and said, yeah. hey, kids, here's a freebie oh, for we you. We talked about that before. That's right. Just, I mean, that, here's freebie, about, kids. That would increase his popularity overnight. Topic changer. Oh, and by the way, one drive Fox crazy for a week. There you go. <laughs> Oh, I would relish uh, being able to watch Fox I, in the days after I that. I am so tired of hearing Fox tell me about Biden's, you know, socialist utopia he's putting together <laughs> and how that's the Democratic dream. And like, been a Democrat my whole life. That's utopia has never been on the agenda. Hasn't happened, yeah. And hey, if you call, I'd like, you know, some decent health insurance at a price I could afford and maybe not go into, you know, crippling debt to go to college. If that's utopia, then guilty as charged. I guess I we we we're utopians if we think the government can help provide that. Seems not like a bunch to ask, is it? Yeah. <laughs> That's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.